Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. I'm not. I'm not on here for the looks. <laughs> well, hello everyone. This is a little bit strange for you. I'm getting to start the show for once, and I've got a little bit of housekeeping. It's uh, it's a question for our YouTube uh, watchers uh, mostly, um, but yeah, our episodes do they do okay on YouTube. Um, but the algorithm seems to really hit our guts. So we've got a bit of a question for you, and, and feel free to say that it's not what you want. Um, we're thinking of ending the full episode drop on YouTube, and, and don't worry if you listen to the podcast elsewhere, it will remain as is. YouTube seems to really favour short-form content, and when we get a short video that does really well, we see good growth in our metrics. The problem is, for those that do watch the episode in full, you're essentially getting bombarded with repeated content, which is you know, obviously something we'd like to not do, if possible. So we've got a loose plan for you. We're thinking of releasing the full episode and video on Spotify and all the other uh, podcast platforms every Sunday and releasing only the cut down formats of the show on YouTube to be like three or five short videos a week. So please bear in mind, this is just a loose plan and we're really looking for uh, feedback here for now. Um, If this is a deal breaker for you, let us know. Uh, Also note that the podcast is actually advert free at the moment uh, with a premium Spotify subscription. And I think it's advert-free on all the other platforms as well. So it might be of benefit for you to watch it this way, and probably not beneficial for us. But I don't know. Uh, what do you prefer? Let us know in the comments. Thanks. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D. And I'm not here with Paul. But we're here and it's a slightly gloomy sort of Saturday morning, really, at least as far as the weather's concerned. But the markets are... Well, they've been kinder to some of us than others for the moment. Flattish week here, but Steve's been having a better time of it. Steve, how's your week been, and how has the market been treating you? Pretty, pretty well, Steve. To be honest with you, um, I've had a, a pretty, a pretty good week. To be honest, I'm up about three point five five percent on the week. That's uh, includes the uh, negative effects of the the strong pound, which uh, rose quite a bit this week. I think I've got one of my positions is now uh, minus FX of eleven percent, which is quite a sizable uh, a sizable fall but as i was pointing out to people and I'll, I'll stick the chart up if i remember it's pretty much back to normality this sort of 130 mark is what i remember from six seven eight nine ten years ago so we're, we're somewhere near the kind of uh kind of uh, amount that we fell down to uh actually brexit caused uh, a pretty massive and then uh, drop and then liz trust another drop as well but we're just creeping back up to where we were before so very good time to be buying u.s stock steve i don't know if you've um you've you've, you've plugged in just any sort of like uh any any buys on u.s stuff at the moment you're getting a hell of a lot more for your money things that were once 500 pound buys and now 400 pound buys and that's always nice so it is a good time to be uh to be buying u.s stocks it's a shame this didn't happen in october when we were at our uh when we were at the uh well the 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 lows of the last sort of 12 months that would have been really nice to be you know buying uh buying with all the extra power but how's your week been steve mine's been pretty good i think yeah, mine's been all right i'm uh i'm as close as makes no difference to level on uh, a week with my portfolio it's down i think by point one of a uh, percent 
it survived the massive uh, crash in Forterra shares that uh, I don't know. I was thinking might have shaken out a few a few weak hands who were thinking end of cycle, everything's ending for the brick company. They reported their uh, results on Wednesday, and I mean the, the, you summarised it quite nicely. We're not covering that here, but um, you summarised quite nicely in the idea of saying. Well, look, we're expecting a recovery in the housing market eventually, and probably not going to be this year. Uh, to be honest, is what they're now uh, forecasting, and you've been seeing that elsewhere in the house building sector. Taylor Wimpy, Persimmon, others as well forecasting completions this year or forward sales or whatever they call them to be down between thirty thirty three percent, depending on who exactly you ask. But uh, there's very much a V shaped recovery in Forterra's share price, and that was the only real, real moving thing uh, for me on on this week. It wasn't a wholly negative report. When I read through that report, I was like, oh, some good, some bad. Do you know what I mean? In here, they're basically saying that uh, uh, sales were down. Was it 16% or 18%? I forget exactly because uh, I forgot we were covering Well, for, forgot we were going to have a <laughs> chat about it. I forgot it existed, to be honest. Um, but it fell down 16 or 18% uh, in terms of revenue. Uh, they were expecting something along this kind of uh, amount, but then for it to improve in the second half, they're now saying they think it'll stay roughly the same. Uh, over the next six months, which I think I, I I probably agree with, but then they're just stuck in at the end that exports are down. Uh, sorry, imports of bricks are down forty four percent, Steve. So uh, that's a massive difference to only be down sixteen to eighteen percent when uh, the imports are down forty four percent. When you've got a brand new factory coming online that you can then you know hopefully swallow up that demand for bricks and you know no longer need to go and get imports. So yeah, I think this one's pretty rosy on a on a long term basis and. For it to fall as much as it did, I said to you, I thought it was a little bit overdone. And then I, I kindly reported around about every 1% back up to even and then green. Pretty much, yeah. It fell to about 150, I think, was about the low on that. And whoever bought that at 150, congratulations. I think it's at about 166 now, well, closing on, on Friday. So someone's immediately up casually 10% on what I think will prove to be a pretty nice investment over time if they bought anything at uh, 150 on Forterra. There'll be cycles on this. Things will get uh, better and worse at different times. And it's right, I think, for investors to think, well, hang on, when exactly are we going to see um, this this recovery happen? Because if it's three years away, that's a different situation to if it's three months away. But um, yeah, so I understand the price coming down a bit when the uh, report wasn't as good. And then suddenly everyone seemed to realise, oh, no, wait, 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 we already knew that. We already knew that nobody's building any houses at the moment. Uh, we didn't really think they were going to be building them at the start of this year, uh, or sorry, during this year, um, even though some people were kind of guiding for that, or for terror were thinking that at one point. Uh, but apart from that, my portfolio generally did reasonably sort of okay. Uh, we'll come back to the bank earnings. One of my banks reported the other one didn't. Um, more to cover on that in a little bit, Steve. But I guess we should draw attention to the fact that we were... Uh, there's no other way to put it wrong uh, about the uh, ashes and the conclusion of the Headingley test. That was up around your way. Yeah, uh, something we should get used to, Steve, considering we've done two years' worth of shows where we've been pretty consistently mm. wrong. Um, it's uh, it's no surprise that we were wrong about the cricket as well, Steve. Something we, we should know a little bit about... Um, but yeah, what a what a stunning finish to uh, to the match. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people who think Test cricket is on its way out, and if you don't like Test cricket, if you're not into cricket, I fully understand it. But if you if you're a cricket fan and you you did like Test cricket after that, the, well, all three of these games really, to be fair, then I don't know uh, I don't know what we can do for you because these have been about as exciting as sport gets for a cricket fan. I think. 
Yeah, I, I think it's been really good for the last couple. There's, there's been some excellent stuff. It's T20 finals day actually today, Steve, if the weather holds in uh, Birmingham. I was, I've been following that competition quite closely because my team, which being in Oxfordshire, we don't have a very good uh, county cricket team. And the county that I'm originally from, which is Hertfordshire, doesn't either. Uh, so looking around for a county to support or that's worth supporting, um, I fixed it on the one. So my dad is from Oxfordshire originally. His dad is from uh, Leamington Spa, which is Warwickshire, which is now Birmingham uh, Bears. So I've been supporting them for quite a while now, actually, but through this competition, I was fascinated to watch them win their group and actually win their group reasonably comfortably with not a very good team as far as I could tell not a very well built for 2020 uh, team and since then every north group team has lost to every south group team in the quarterfinals so it's an all south finals day this time with Hampshire, Surrey and a couple of other teams as well that I can't remember exactly who's there. Here's a fun fact for you Steve, Uh, Mm. Cap Captain Will Rhodes uh, used to play for my cricket team. Did he? He's from yes, he's from uh, Beverly. He was. Uh, I have got him out on a number of occasions, uh, but he was an incredible cricketer at, at his uh, this kind of bracket. Even like we're talking like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen years old. He was he was a, a full men's senior cricketer, scoring forties and fifties. We always had an idea he was going to go on and be pretty good. His big brother though was even better. He was a six foot three, six foot four kind of kid. Could hit, a, could hit a, a, a ball a few miles, and <laughs> was was incredibly fast and bouncy. Sort of a Harmison sort of kind of gangliness mm-hmm. to his bowling, which which in 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 you know the whole leagues. Uh, we used to play um, Yorkshire leagues. Um, was uh, was quite frightening. <laughs> But um, he he never went on to be to to do anything, and and Will's gone on to be well captain of Warwickshire, which is not to be sniffed at. Yeah, he's the four day captain for Warwickshire. They're doing pretty well in that as well, actually. Handy win over over Kent. But um, we're now getting way 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 beyond our our station here. Well, the Ashes is one thing. Uh, the ins and outs of the county championship is quite another. So let's get on to the exciting stuff, shall we, Steve? Let's do it. Okay, so we're going to start by talking about a box-making company uh, because someone asked us to. Alex sent us a message asking what we think about DS Smith, uh, which is a FTSE 100 company that you probably know uh, best for producing things like the thing behind me. If you're not watching, behind me is a big corrugated box or corrugated cardboard box. They have produced boxes for stuff like Amazon uh, deliveries, all of that kind of uh, thing. Um I knew them for that, basically, before we started looking at this, and I knew that they had a fairly low PE and a fairly high dividend yield. And um, that was pretty much the sum total of my um, uh, info about them before I I got going on this. But I had a bit of a look uh, and came up with some... Tried to do a bit of thinking, tried to do a bit of digging around, actually. D.S. Smith, believe it or not, for such a sexy company, is... um, not covered that well by the street or the uh, city particularly they they tend to be referred to as amazon box manufacturer ds smith uh, but which is um an interesting way to think about things i guess i mean so i, I like the idea in investing terms of of finding companies that people don't know about i mean it's FTSE 100 stock people ought to have heard of it but uh, finding companies that are kind of sneak everywhere uh, and you know constantly coming through your letterbox and so on make products that are not reusable even if they are recyclable more on that in a minute um and and then finding that there's kind of good value here so so this was good fun to look at 
I sort of had an idea of how this was going to go before I got started, and I think my idea is wrong. Uh, so what I was thinking beforehand is boxes. Not terribly interesting, not terribly exciting, not terribly innovative, um, but important. And so what kind of business are we looking at here? It's going to be a commodity type business, i.e. who can make boxes cheapest and get them to me the most, well, partly cheaply and partly efficiently and reliably and stuff, right? So kind of things we would look for in a mining company. Okay, you don't mine boxes, but you get the idea. Um, and since boxes are a kind of finished good rather than a, a raw material, something that is very much hostage to the price of their input costs and so on, uh, broadly speaking, that's what I was expecting to find here. And I think that's there's elements of that was on the mark, but it's not quite right. Um, so here's the kind of main thing that stood out to me about them when I looked at them from a, a general business overview qualitative uh, thought here. They see themselves as much more of a finished goods company than a commodity company. And that means a couple of things. It means they have much more in the way of R&D costs uh, because they are busy working quite closely with their um, people they sell to to, fight, to make things like customised packaging for, I don't know, small radiators or whatever uh, that you're going to ship to places. And they, are, they see themselves as very much part of the kind of drive to recycling, renewable, stop packing things in plastic, start packing things in these nice customised cardboard insert things that we can uh, make for you. And that doesn't lend itself towards being a commodity of look here's your boxes put stuff in it uh type model um but predictably though their biggest cost is materials which is a variable cost it's about 45 percent of their total costs which tells you in case you didn't already know it means there's not really an operating leverage here that can be a good thing and a bad thing it means that you don't grow as fast and it means that you don't get into trouble when things go wrong um growth wise they've been showing up pretty well lately they uh, they put up some really impressive results earlier this uh, no earlier last month i think in june uh so we've been seeing inflation everywhere and for reasons i'll come back to i was expecting them to be getting mullered by inflation um generally speaking no they appear to be more than capable of raising their prices and um volumes went down but they just hiked the price by so damn much i think because of their uh, nicely kind of customized products and, and differentiated stuff that, that that gives them seems to give them a degree of pricing power which is tick impressive uh, they have lots of nice case studies if you look on their website of, of smallish companies that manufacture specialist things and need them shipping somewhere this is a good thing this sounds very diploma or bunzle uh, actually more uh, to me of working closely with people makes you harder to disrupt uh, you have a trusted supplier rather than a standard come here buy boxes from me for less kind of thing so Felt positively about that. Um, the thing I noticed about DS Smith is that I saw a chart looking at... Just look at their dividend chart for the moment. And I know there's more to investing in the dividend, but um, what you will see with their dividend chart is it goes up and down over time. And what it tracks almost exactly is consumer spending in the UK, which is probably not a massive surprise, but it is very much a cyclical business like that. And I think that goes some way towards explaining its quite low PE ratio. So... GDP in the UK declined by, what, 0.1 of a percent in May or something like that. It went backwards, but not as much as everyone thought it would. So people were uh, busy letting off fireworks because we we're only slightly going backwards uh, economically. And everyone's expecting we'd be going backwards at a rate. If you look at a kind of chart of the, the shape of UK consumer spending over the last decade, look at a shape of DS Smith's dividend over the last decade, they are basically the same chart, as far as I can tell, apart from you have slightly more data points for the consumer spending thing. 
So, okay, I've got a decent picture in my head of this. It's a kind of finished goods company. Actually, it's a bit more bespoke than you think. It's easier to say lazily, boxes, Amazon, done. There's a lot more going on here than that. Um, Here's the bit that doesn't add up for me then. So you have your finished goods company. You think you provide kind of additional value here. Margins here are not good from what I could tell. I was looking at operating margins, and I'm not talking about just the fact that we've been in a downturn recently or that GDP is slowing down, and you would expect that to weigh on margins a little bit. Um, margins don't seem to get to double digits ever across the cycle, as far as I can tell. And I thought at first, that to me sounds much more like a kind of uh, commodity-esque uh, type business. So I'm back at that thought again, which is everyone fighting everybody to try and slash their prices as low as they can, secure big orders, sell them off to Amazon or whoever, um, and and just try and make a little bit of a, a margin on that because really what you're selling is a box and no one really cares to pay more for your box because it's recyclable when push really comes to shove. But that isn't right either, and this is where I got stuck too. So... Uh, the Investaway podcast described this as their second, as their uh, a bit of tongue in cheek from them. They described it as their favourite box making company, um, and they did also say they don't have a second. Uh, my second would be International Paper, um, which is the only other box comp- making company I can name. The reason Mondi. I know about these Mondi. Oh, of course, yeah, they do boxes, don't they? Mm. International Paper is one I heard of when I was right back in the days of being a dividend investor and just looking for things with big yields, and they seem to have a decent 6-plus percent yield pretty much all the time. Um, I also concluded they weren't a very good business, but they do run operating margins that are pretty consistently 10%, as opposed to DS Smith, which is 9 on a good year, uh, basically. Uh, so they're nearly kind of double the operating margins here, and that's a bit that kind of confused me a little bit. If you have your product that's differentiated and premium-like and so on, they're doing a very good job of passing through inflation costs and more, but their operating margins never seem to get terribly high, and I never managed to pin down why that is. Um, we can come back to talk about valuation in the style of the investor way a little bit, but that's my kind of basic overview on DS Smith here. I'm trying to work out what model I fit this into, whether I fit this into a finished goods thing and therefore you charge something of a premium because you're producing a better quality product, or whether I see this as a kind of race to the bottom commodity and you can have advantages in that. Scale is helpful, lower cost is helpful and so on. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't quite that doesn't quite seem to stack up for me with the way they see themselves. Steve, what do you think? They're just in a really hard place, aren't they? Because they're in that kind of space where um, they want to do sort of uh, premium bespoke packaging for people, but they know that if they make the the price too expensive, uh, you're just going to go and order plastic, and that sort of doubly hurts their business. So they're in this kind of you know they've got to be incredibly lean to uh to get it across the board they also tend to lose money on the hedging as well steve because they hedge their uh, they're one of the only uh, pulp uh, users mm. that actually hedges the pulp price to try and keep it semi-consistent uh, and that uh obviously when pulp prices are falling and you have a hedge you're going to lose money on that hedge uh, it's on only when you're rising that you're going to actually see a benefit for it so uh, interesting company, Steve, and I think that's another thing um, that we should really point out is that when the price of something is rising, uh, um, for example, the pulp price is rising and you have a a, a fairly uh, extensive um, exposure to pulp, it's very easy to pass on price increases because you just point at the pulp price and say, "This is why I'm, ra- you know, this is why I'm raising your prices." We we have the same thing in the timber industry. The price is going up. Why is the price going up? It's not because we want to do it. It's because that's what it costs now, mm. uh, and and that tends to be the case. I, I would imagine 
people like Amazon have to kind of like suck that up because they're not going to want to switch their you know their whole cardboard system to to a plastic system I would imagine because that means they have to retrain all the robots to pick something up that's completely different uh, you know completely different to the the cardboard boxes so I would assume that's why they do that see but I like the Smith. I mean, I like it, I think, because I've got a bit of home bias. There's a factory about a hundred, uh, well, maybe a couple of hundred metres away from where I work. I can nearly see it out my window. It's a big old factory. You'd be uh, you'd, you'd be impressed by the size of it. Um, but it's a company that's doing pretty well, Steve. I'm just looking at its results now. I mean, not to be sniffed at, 11% revenue growth, 35% EBITDA growth, 34% EPS growth, and 20% uh, on top of the dividend. 1.3 times net debt to EBITDA. That's not the end of the world, Steve. That's not something that's completely over-levered. Um, I think this is, you know, for somebody who wants this kind of exposure, I think it's a pretty decent company to, to get your hands on. I think it's trading at a decent price as well, actually. So it's got a PE of around 8 from what I could see. I wouldn't trust that PE. I'm Here's one thing I am moved by that Jeremy Grantham says. He, I think he's wrong about nearly everything. I don't think he knows what he's talking about, about much stuff. But here are some things he does uh, say that I think is probably right, and I'm trying to factor into my thinking here. So it's tempting to think, look, low PE, big dividend yield, this must be good value. Low PE, big dividend yield are nothing to do with the company. They're to do with the market, basically. And and that is just the market's way of, in its short-term voting way, uh, telling you we think that these earnings are the least likely to prove sustainable and this dividend is more than average likely to get cut, basically. Uh, so if you think about whatever the whatever the FTSE 100, well, I didn't look it up again. So just under 4% or so. DS Smith, well above that. FTSE 100 trading at a PE somewhere in the teens. They think, uh, the market is generally telling you at the moment, we think DS Smith's earnings are going to prove less sustainable at this level than the FTSE 100s. And they may be wrong, uh, and if you can tell them why they're wrong, go and buy it, basically. Uh, But that's all that low PE kind of means to me. So I don't think earnings are going to stay at this level either. Question is, is today's price kind of expensive, uh, even when they're not at these earnings? And maybe not. I mean... 2021 was their kind of low year. Uh, you're looking at 20 times those earnings. Um, I wouldn't want to buy something like this at 20 times earnings in a good year. I might buy it at 20 times earnings in a bad year. You'll get a big cyclical tailwind. I think it's illegal to talk about DS Smith and not say growth of e-commerce means that more people are going to use cardboard boxes and the like. Um, so uh, there is there's something good about that. Um, their capex was up in their most recent uh, set of results. And uh, the one thing about this company that gives me just a little bit of pause is I think I I think they're in danger of trying a bit too hard uh, in that they are, they've got big capex. They describe it as mostly uh, growth capex, uh, which is sort of annoying to me. And they're talking about their constantly innovative products for packaging. I sort of want to shout at them and say, you're a box company. Stop trying to innovate around boxes. Just make the damn boxes and sell the damn boxes and dividend out the rest of it instead of trying to do all kinds of fascinating development things with boxes. Yeah, they're one of these companies that are trying to do like a load of box ticking out. They're trying uh, yeah, to try and get... Yes, they yeah. are. <laughs> Accidental. <laughs> uh, but they are... Um, yeah, they're basically trying to do ESG, do recycling, do sustainability, all this kind of stuff to try and like 
access a higher share price rather than just perform better and get a better share price. I think that's kind of what I what I'm seeing here. Steve, just before we uh, just before I let you go back in, I'm looking at their current capital allocation priorities um, that they've they've helpfully listed in their uh, uh, in their investor presentation. So their their priorities are in in this order: organic investment to achieve a, uh, over a fifteen percent return on invested capital, supporting our customer growth. Uh, progressive dividend to be two and two point five x covered. Uh, bolt on MA MA sorry disciplined approach driven by customer pull and financial returns, and then surplus capital return to shareholders. So if that doesn't tell you something about, it, they've basically got four priorities there, and they mentioned the dividend twice in it. So <laughs> uh, a proper dividend investor stock. This um, if they can achieve fifteen percent ROIC get a few mergers and acquisitions in and pay out a decent, well-covered dividend, then uh, it quits in, really, are you? Yeah, uh, I think there's 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 plenty to like here. Their website annoyed me with its constant talk about things that feel like buzzwords. It feels like people trying to attach buzzwords to boxes, um, and I found that more irritating than anything. But this isn't the worst investment idea that I've I've looked at here. I... I could see myself getting towards buying it. Um, just on the subject of their facility near you, Steve, is there anything in the UK that doesn't have a facility near where you are? I mean, feel like you told me BAE Systems was just up the road at one point and that Croder International you can see from your window. And DS Smith are also apparently somewhere there as well. Is there anything that you're not particularly near? Uh, we're, we're not we're not short of stupid people to do labor labor tasks i don't think so uh, uh there is there is there is something that isn't because it just left. Um Seven Cs. There you go. They've left the, the, oh, the cod liver oil. Cod liver oil. Yeah, they've just gone. But we've got. <laughs> yeah, we've got. A, we've got quite a lot of things here. We've. We've got. Um, in fact, not far from me, we've got a Cranswick, Steve. You know, the the big. Of course, uh, the sausage company. The sausage company. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, we've got, we've got plenty of stuff around here. So. Why are you? Not, why isn't the whole capital of the UK? <laughs> I've no idea. You have a Swedish bank up there as well. <laughs> we have a handles bank in, yeah. We have a marina like Monaco. Um, we have a, a big no, aquarium. You, hang on, hang on, hang on. You have a marina. You don't have a marina like Monaco, do you? Well, yeah, it's full of tugboats, but it's still a marina. <laughs> okay. Um, anything else on DS Smith? I mean, it's, it feels to me like it's one where it's very tempting to just sort of read the numbers out and, and feel like you've got it covered. And you might well have. I was, I was desperately reaching for what might pass as insight into uh, any of this and i'm not really sure i got there in the end but um uh, there's not much on ds smith out there at the moment and those are my my loose thoughts anyway it's a set i'm the same place as you it's perpetually on my probably should buy this list it looks okay to me but then i never never quite get over the line i, I did at one point own about five or ten shares of it as i started to think Ooh. about making a position and then just got completely soft sidetracked by something else and, and kicked it back into touch. So it is something that's on my list of things that I probably should buy. I think it's something that you can just leave to its own devices as well. I think it's something that you wouldn't need to constantly check up on. Uh, but, I mean, I quite like it. And I'd be interested to hear what other people think in the comments section as well. So drop it in, let us know, uh, and, uh, yeah, be glad to hear it. Yeah, Alex, if you're there, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well uh, on this. You were asking us to uh, see what we thought of it, and those are our sort of thoughts, I guess. We're not we're not got anything massively inspirational there for you. I can't point to a bit where I think everybody is missing this important thing. We must buy it. It's interesting with earnings season coming kind of round and DS Smith. I sort of feel like a lot of UK, we're at the point because it's the midpoint for the year where the US uh, companies are reporting, starting with the banks, more on them in a little bit. 
But because it's the half year mark, there's also quite a bit coming out from the UK too. And I like the fact, it makes sense to me that we have half yearly reports on uh, stuff like the FTSE 100, right? What do we need to know every quarter what DS Smith or Unilever is doing? Who's sitting there with like DS Smith shares thinking, well, I haven't heard from him in three months. Maybe it's a completely different business by this point. I mean, I must find out. I can't wait another three until I find out how many boxes we've sold. Yeah, that's essentially it, isn't it? There's, <laughs> there's not going to be an awful lot that's going to have changed. We might have sold 10% less or 10% more. We will only find yeah. out in six months' time. What we're going to do next time? Sell some more boxes, probably. Okay, uh, having got uh, through the interesting bit of the FTSE 100, Steve, what have you been looking at here? Well, we're, we're into another interesting section. We've gone from boxes to steam. Uh, but I've got Spirax Sarko, Steve. So I said I, last week I promised that I would take a look at it over the weekend. I didn't actually manage that. I said to Steve, I think I did 100 steps over the weekend and still didn't manage to read a single thing about Spirax Sarko. Um, but on Monday, I did actually uh, start to take a look at it. And I've taken some surface level notes and i thought i would just share them with everybody here so uh so spirit sarko was actually listed on the uh lse back in 1959 uh it's got had the same ticker uh, then as it does today which is spx in december 2018 it became a constituent member of the FTSE 100 and has remained there since uh it has three aspects to its business uh, steam specialities which makes up about 50 percent of revenues Electric Thermal Solutions, which make up 22%, and Watson Marlow, uh, a fluid tech business, which makes up about 28% of the business. So uh, I've done a little bit of digging into these for you, so I'll tell you a little bit about these aspects. So uh, Steam Specialties, uh, that includes machines that will heat, cure, clean, sterilize, provide hot water, heat spaces, and humidify. Um, so Spirits provide individual parts, full systems, maintenance and installation. And an idea of what these sort of products could be are things like steam traps, control valves, strainers, heat recovery systems, flow meters and things like industrial boiler controls. Um, in terms of electric thermal solutions, this is essentially an industrial heating division. So this focuses on things like pipes, valves, tanks, component heating. Uh, again, it's both individual products, full system solutions, including maintenance and installation. And lastly, uh, it's Watson Marlow. This is a fluid path technology company specialises in peristaltic pumps. You've got a few of these systems in your body, Steve. Uh, not not built by Spirit Sarko, but it will help you understand the tech. For example, um, your digestive tract is peristaltic. It's basically muscle, muscles outside of the system contracting and, and releasing to push food through a tract. Uh, in an industrial setting, this means that the pumps will be outside of the wire uh, tubing to sort of push fluid along a pipe and this is great for things like biopharma that need accurate um, dosing and things like that to test effectively it also means that nothing gets contaminated by a bad clean or anything like that because the actual machinery is is outside of the pipe um this brings us on to sales sectors so it's pretty well diversified in terms of revenue 23 percent of sales are from the biopharma sector 18% are from food and beverage, 12% are from OEM machinery, 5% each uh, in oil and gas, and 5% in chemicals. The remaining is made up of power generation, healthcare, semiconductors, Steve, so it's an instant buy, wastewater, building, mining, and transport. Sperax says 60% of its revenue is from what you would describe as defensive non-cyclical, and 85% of its revenue is derived from OPEX budgets and not CAPEX budgets, which means that its revenue should be pretty stable. Um, in terms of future growth, Spirax, um, 
highlights geographical expansion, new product development, and nearshoring as internal growth for them to go out and explore. They also highlight things like population growth, industrialization of certain economies, energy, natural resource growth and usage, uh, and actually regulatory requirements as areas external to the business that they can capture. They're not afraid of making an acquisition or 20 either, Steve, as you'll see from their history. Their last three acquisitions were all last year, where Cotopaxi for 13.3 million, Volcanic for 261.7 million, and Jurex, not that Jurex, uh, for 342.2 million. All a little expensive. They were between 11.5 and 16.6 times EBITDA. Uh, but Sperax expects these will generate around 200 million of revenue over the year and about 50 million of EBITDA. Um, Sperax currently has a presence in 98 countries and has about 10,400 staff members, of which 2,100 are either sales staff or engineers. It has 146 operating units, uh, of which 64 were established or acquired in the last six years. It manufactures in 16 countries with larger footprints in the UK, France, Germany, US, Brazil and China. One of the things they do deserve credit for is they've achieved pretty consistent top-line growth, uh, achieving just over 9% compound average uh, growth rate, compound annual growth rate, I always say average, over the last 10 years, <clears throat> while increasing margins from the mid-16s to over 25%. Uh, this is a company flexing operational efficiency, uh, and in terms of comparison, that's about 2.4 times uh, global IP. Uh, EPS growth of about 12% um, Kega over the last 10 years has allowed them to grow the dividend by a similar amount. It's not a huge dividend today uh, of about 1.7%, but you won't care about that because it's done, it's done well, it's nearly a four bagger over the last 10 years just on capital appreciation. So, yeah, you won't mind about that. And it's uh, done this without doing any buybacks as well. In terms of capital, uh, capital allocation policy, uh, it's in the following order of priority. Invest in themselves, invest in acquisitions, reduce the debt. Net debt's about 1.5 times EBITDA and then retain capital to shareholders. I mean, I like it. I think that's quite a positive list, especially when you consider the return on capital employed has been above 50% for the last five years. And cash conversion is about 80% over the same period. Market cap, touch over 7.5 billion. It's got about 1.6 billion in revenues on its last financial year. 75% gross margins, which is incredibly high for an industrial. Uh, this allows them to generate around 405 million of EBITDA. Nets out about 225 million or so of net income. Growth pretty much across the board. Uh, revenue 14% organically. Up profit plus 7%. EPS up 11% as of the last uh, last report. Valuation-wise, it's a little bit stickier. Morningstar has a wide moat sticker on this one at the moment and a £118 price tag. At the moment, we're at about 100 quid, um, so that's roughly 20% upside on their take. I worked out as being uh, needing about 14% growth in free cash flow over the next 10 years from here to make that target. So it's doable, but when you factor in the moat, uh, you're probably going to command a premium on exit as well. It's probably not as far away as you think. In terms of metrics, you're looking at about 33p backwards looking, 24.5 on a forward basis. Uh, it's about 20 times EV to EBITDA. It's not cheap, Steve, but it's not ridiculously expensive. I think this is a pretty exciting business. I've got a small position in this one now, Steve. Anything here that attracts you? Lots here that attracts me. It feels a lot like the kind of companies that I like, and it feels like... Um there's a class of FTSE 100, which I think this is, uh, stock. In fact, let's not say FTSE 100. Let's say UK stock, because I'm going to include some examples from 250 as well, that goes in the category of Halma Diploma, uh, Bunzel, these guys. Um, and there's a good amount of 
trying to pick one from the other is probably too sophisticated for me but you could build a nice basket and include this in there pretty well so you mentioned some points that are quite familiar to uh listeners or people who spend too long reading the stuff i write for motley fool which is a paid for out of opex uh thing which is helpful i mean one of the big things about paid for out of opex that doesn't surprise me massively from a company that is at least partly you said components as well as uh full systems across their board of steam electric and uh fluid tech stuff when it comes to components you have big their main market you said was pharma uh i think you have big machines doing things there big machines not doing things because they need a component is is expensive for the people that run those machines and they want to be uh, getting stuff in there so they're not going to be dithering around in trying to find money to to buy components they will keep buying them when they break uh basically there'll be elements of kind of cyclicality to this i would think but They've been doing a good job, it looks like, of trying to grow by acquisition and kind of smooth out some of that cyclicality because, okay, you mentioned sort of buying 11 times EBITDA or something like that, maybe. Um, Their own stock, if they were to use it, and it doesn't sound like they have been using it particularly because they haven't really printed shares in the last however long, I wouldn't have minded them doing it. Your own stuff's trading at 34 times earnings. You're going to buy something in at 11 times what we might call cash earnings instant arbitrage uh for your growth basically right that will make your earnings go assuming they do the same thing or better that will make them go up faster than they were if you hadn't done it uh so they seem to be right by the way that those seem to be defensive end markets so farmer and food you mentioned were their top two those are those are two pretty classically defensive um sort of areas in that they don't tend to nothing seems to respect a recession in those things people keep eating people keep needing uh medical treatments so uh, yeah lots to like there it reminds me a lot of a diploma halma uh mix with a similarish sort of price tag actually around the sort of 30 something times earning mark yeah I, I think there's there's definitely comparisons to draw there um i i the only thing i would the the only issue i really had with it is that the same issue that you raised then is that they they don't have a massive cash pile steve they've got about 330 million in cash and that stock there is is pretty expensive for a UK stock. I mean, in terms of looking at DS Smith versus Spark Sarko, um, DS Smith is growing a bit faster. It's a box company. Uh, so this company should really be using its stock to uh, to finance some of these uh, larger acquisitions, the, the 200, sort of 100, 150 million uh, sort of uh, deals. I would love to see them finance the, uh, with their own stock. And uh, if they've built up a big cash pile, I'd quite like to see them do some buybacks, Steve. Um, in terms of the dividend as well, I think it's one of those pointless dividends that I couldn't possibly get excited about. I, I would probably sooner that not be there um, and then focus on uh, buybacks um, using their stock as uh, as acquisition and, and, yeah, really going from there. I don't see any reason to pay a 1.7% dividend. It's just not – I don't get why I need that. No, the dividend is strange. Diploma does this too, and a guy called Charlie Huggins on Business Breakdown said, you know, might prefer if they didn't, to be honest, then they wouldn't have to be um, using stock in their case for acquisition. Look, if you're in the business of your price earnings ratio says growth, uh, 34 backwards, 20 odd forwards says your earnings are going to be higher. I think voting machine again, the market's expecting you to make that number go bigger. And you can do that organically. You can also do it through acquisitions. And clearly with these kind of companies, acquisitions are going to be a big part of the story. Uh, maybe not all of it, but you know, uh, they have to find stuff to buy and they need to buy at the right price. And buying it with cash is going to be, it's going to be helpful uh, for this sort of thing. So I also don't 
not a big fan of the dividend there unless there's something that I'm I'm missing, which is highly possible. Understanding these kind of markets, I think, is helpful. I was looking again at their market cap. One of the things that we always wonder about for growth by acquisition, there's two sort of main risks. One is you overpay for something, definitely a possibility. The other is um, that you run out of stuff to buy, and, and either that causes you to... Um, uh, overpay for something because there isn't really anything but you find the need to do something or you don't overpay for anything and don't do anything at all in which case you have a non-growing or, or slow-growing stock with a 34 price earnings ratio and that won't last very long but I don't think there's much danger of that at the moment I mean it's easy to kind of get that risk in your head I think and I think it's true of Halmar and Diploma and these guys these have a market cap of around seven and a half billion, you were saying, or something. I mean, it's not. We're not short on things that can meaningfully move the needle for that. When we get to um, Berkshire Hathaway sort of territory, or even slightly kind of smaller than that, yeah. Look, finding something that's going to bump earnings at that level along by ten percent is well, you've got to buy something pretty big at that point. And most of that stuff's publicly traded, and the stuff that isn't isn't for sale. At this level, uh, I don't think they're going to have problems finding stuff that they can uh, get hold of and buy and uh, use to kind of add along as long as they do it in the in the right kind of way. Yeah, agree. They, they are semi-committed to this dividend. I'm just looking down on Dividend Max now, and there's actually a few specials that have been thrown in here as well. So they are fairly committed to when they have excess cash to throwing it to you in the terms of in terms of a dividend. I mean, they're not massive amounts when you look at you know you're talking about a hundred a uh, hundred. Uh, pound stock there's 25p special here back in 2011 obviously the share price would have been a lot less by then but then uh 2015 there's £2.40 paid out as a special and uh that looks like oh no there was another £1.20 paid out in uh, earlier in 2014 so not a massive uh not a massive amount in terms of what the share price is today but back then it probably uh, it would have been a lot more towards it so not had a special for seven years steve Maybe they are changing the way they think about that. Maybe they think acquisitions over um, over dividend. Uh, I would say that's a pretty good idea. I think just cut the whole thing. Cut the whole thing. Get rid of the debt. Make more acquisitions, buybacks, whatever it needs to be. Uh, I think that's where I'd be heading if I were them. Yeah, you can always special it out if you really think it's not there, uh, the acquisition opportunities. You can always say, well, look, it's been three years or whatever, uh, we're going to buy back stock because we can't find anything else we want to buy or or we'll chuck it out as a dividend if we think the price is wrong on buying back stock. Um, I'm not sure getting committed to a dividend is, is particularly helpful there, but they seem to be pretty good at finding stuff to acquire through the cycle. Um, in the, And I mean this in a good way, they're not really market timers. They're not going to say, look, stuff is expensive at the moment, interest rates are low, we're going to sit here on a load of cash and not do anything. And that, Maybe the right thing, maybe the wrong thing for for other businesses, but in their case, they're finding stuff at eleven times to say, "Yep, I'll have that. I'll buy this. Um, let's keep pushing forward and and doing the things that we that we do here." Which means that that dividend can only be acting as a, a drag. It can't be helping them in any way. There's nothing they can buy because they're paying a dividend that they couldn't have bought if they weren't paying it. And that um, maybe a bit more. Uh, I don't know. There's a good growth focus there, and they're doing a nice job, so uh, I'm not too critical, I guess. Yeah, hard to criticise something that's four-bagged in, in 10 years, isn't it? But, mm. um, yeah, I mean, looking at its high, Steve, its high was uh, nearly 170 quid, so to come down to what we're at now, we're at basically 104 quid. That's a 30, nearly 40% fall in terms of its share price off its high. It was one of those stocks that, in, in COVID, people thought it was a wild beater, 
But it's come back to, you know, if you was to draw trend lines and believe in those kind of things, it would be pretty much under the trend line uh, from where it was. So potential for it here just to meander on uh, meander on how it, how it has been doing. Um, I guess, and market recession is a little bit of a threat, but they're um, they're mostly in sort of defensive-ish stuff. Uh, they were saying so, so good. Yeah, and the thing is, is that the the recession is not going to be the same everywhere, is it? So recession is going to be felt probably in UK and EU, but in in America where they have that a large proportion of their manufacturing uh, doesn't look like that's going into recession, Steve, at the moment. So there'll be areas where they can supplement poor performance with uh, with with market good performance. Yeah, they look admirably focused to my highly untrained eye in this area, by the way, as well. It looks like it's, okay, they've got three segments there, which is sort of steam, electrical stuff, and um, fluid uh, movement. They look to me like they're largely focused around sort of fluids in various forms. Okay, steam isn't uh, that, but you point out it's boilers and so on and so forth. I kind of like that idea of having three things that fit much closer together because one of the kind of things that allows you to acquire well is your ability to add some sort of value to the thing that you've acquired, either by distribution or by uh, running things together and cutting down management costs or whatever it might be. And the closer they are uh, to an existing business you have, the more your scope is going to likely allow you to do that. So so I, I kind of like the fact they appear to be focused on i mean i've written down a.o smith several times uh which is uh, basically boiler and heating company from the u.s and i was like okay steam that sounds like a.o smith electric thing that sounds like a.o smith peristaltic pumps i've uh, never heard of those by the way uh before i thought a peristaltic pump was a thing i had last night when i couldn't sleep but uh no that also sounds like an a.o smith um type thing so there's an admirable kind of focus here, uh, I think, which might also help them acquire, because if you can acquire and add value, you can pay more for it and justify doing so. I think that's, yeah, I think that's generally the the, the rule that you're seeing here is that they're, they're specialists in a couple of industries. And whenever they see anything pop up that's even remotely exciting in those industries, they just they just take it on. Hmm. Okay, uh, Sparrow Sarko, one you own. Um, interested in whether anyone else is um, interested in buying uh, this one? It was, it was a requ- uh, no. You said you were going to have a look at it, wasn't it? It wasn't so much a request that we had uh, mm. come in, but um, there we go. Stocks to buy in July. Uh, let's talk about some other things, shall we, Steve? It's earnings time again. As is tradition, we begin then with the U.S. banks because everyone else does too because they go first. Uh, and since we're recording this on Saturday the 15th, we've had about half of them. They appear to have split their uh, reporting out between Friday just gone, so Friday the 14th, and weirdly Tuesday, as far as I can tell. I think Bank of America and Goldman and uh, some others are on Tuesday, but JP Morgan have had a go, City have had a go, and Wells Fargo have had a go. And they were saying on The Motley Fool, I genuinely didn't know this, for someone who's I guess this mostly, I suppose, reflects the distinctive way in which I think about earnings reports, and people can take or leave it, including listeners of this channel. I didn't realise that all three of these had beaten across the board um, because I didn't pay any attention whatsoever to what the estimates were. I have the revenue numbers, and I have the relationship to last year's numbers uh, in each case, but I genuinely couldn't have told you whether these were beats or misses in any cases, and they're all beats, it turns out, if you like that kind of thing. Let's start with JP Morgan because it's the only interesting one. Uh, revenue came in at 49.3 billion which was up around 34% earnings per share came in at a number that I now can't read very well but I've written 4.77 dollars per share which was up 72% 
Um, without their First Republic acquisition, so this is the first quarter they've had of reporting First Republic's uh, or income from First Republic as well, their earnings per share would have been $4.37, which I think means that they've that's managed to account for about 9% of their earnings per share, First Republic. That's a nice acquisition for not a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, I I, I really don't go, I told you so, uh, on this show, because nearly all the time I hadn't told you so, and I was wrong about most of it, and I try to present those things a bit more forthrightly than when I get something right. But, but at the time, the First Republic acquisition did look like quite a good deal, Steve, right? I mean, we were we were kind of on that thought as we were seeing it happen, that the rules are maybe a bit different for a big bank if there's a crisis on. They've all been... They've all been gifts, haven't they? That's that's how we would uh, probably describe them. Is the they've just been absolute gifts to the big banks. Um, First Republic was uh, a decent looking bank gifted to J.P. Morgan and Silicon Valley, uh, the UK arm, was a pretty good bank, absolutely gifted to HSBC as well. So mm. uh, interesting to interesting to see that, Steve. Um, I'm just looking at J.P. Morgan's results now, and they look they look very impressive, don't they? But it's 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 hard to it's hard, it's hard to criticize Jamie Dimon, isn't it? When when he churns out these kind of results, they generally do. Time. Yeah, net interest income was up forty four percent. Investment banking revenue was down three percent. This is all highly expectable um, stuff. But uh, yeah, you're right in thinking that HSBC have already reported. I think from the their add on of Silicon Valley Bank. Worth pointing out, there is still scope for this to go wrong, at least in theory. Uh, loans can go bad, rising interest rates can whack things, they can cause defaults. They now have First Republic's loan book, which is you know paying the money at the moment. It, it, there's scope for that to not happen, but I think I did some very, very rapid back-of-the-envelope maths. But if you just assume everything nets out to zero from here, which you shouldn't, because it won't, um, I think they've already made their money back on this um, uh, transaction in terms of I think it chucks in around 12 or so billion uh, for them and I think that's about what they paid to acquire it um, plus giving the money back to everything else in the FDIC so you know instant um, there's a deal when you see it right that's uh, that's the kind of deal that Buffett can't do uh, Berkshire because it's not a bank but sitting around with piles of cash when it all comes to uh, when all push comes to shove can be can be really helpful here uh, for for something like JP Morgan. Yeah, and looking at this um this pre-provision operating profit which is a, a good metric to look at for uh, for banks people mm. margin. It's gone from 39% to 50%. That is incredible. Uh, PPOP, for anybody who doesn't know at home, is basically the income that a, and a financial institution earns before subtracting for for future bad debt. So to see that growing by 11% just kind of shows you what they've got in that loan book. That loan book is not as bad as people seem to think it is, I don't think, Steve. Hmm. No, I don't think it's as bad as people seem to think it is, including Jamie Dimon, actually, who has been talking about economic hurricanes for a while. I heard them talking about this on Motley Fool last night, and someone was saying, yes, there kind of was an economic hurricane of a sort. It just ran through the... It was stuff that wasn't bolted down, like the the smaller banks uh, that got kind of swept away into it, and stuff that was bolted down was just basically there to pick up pieces. I'm not sure I think that's all over yet, just for what it's worth, but... Um, but so far, that's very much been the story. Have you ever seen the meme of the old man at the car when he gets, uh, he's about to get carjacked and he says, call me an ambulance and he's like going down holding his heart and then he just pulls out a gun and he says, but not for me. That's kind of like <laughs> Jamie Dimon. That's what Jamie Dimon said, isn't it? Economic hurricane ahead. 
but not for me. <laughs> I like that very much. No, I haven't seen that meme, but that sounds like a good one. Um, we should make it. We should make it. Uh, yeah, that's really good. Uh, that's our thumbnail sorted anyway. Uh, City Group then, we'll keep moving forwards here because we've got a bit of time left, but there's more banks to talk about. Uh, their revenues were down a percent from last year at 19.44 billion. Their earnings per share were down by about 40% to $1.33. Uh, investment banking is still rubbish here, but City are in the middle of a turnaround, so don't worry about the investment banking stuff for a moment. Um, they are in the business of exiting various markets, and you would expect that to weigh on revenues. What you would expect it to do is provide cash that they can um, redeploy elsewhere, and that's that's kind of happening, uh, the winding down of these things. They've managed to not find a buyer, I think, for their kind of Mexico franchise, and they're going to try and IPO it instead, which is... I think an awful time to be trying to IPO you know, anything, let alone a Mexican bank. Apparently pretty good Mexican bank, by all accounts, but not a good time to be trying to IPO everything. Um, the issues they're having are basically that their costs are too high, uh, and they seem to be going up and up and up. Restructuring is... I guess it shouldn't be a massive surprise to anybody for two reasons. One is that restructuring is expensive, full stop. Uh, it involves incurring costs even when you're firing people it involves incurring costs because you have to pay the people to fire them the other is they did say expenses were going to go up uh, i had a little look at the um analyst uh call and generally speaking the question the question came around twice actually about expenses the way they've been projecting out is that yes expenses are going to go higher for a bit and then they're going to kind of uh, they call it bending the curve uh, basically which will cause them to fall off as things become into their kind of steady state rather than their building state uh, which is okay you can believe that or not the analysts i think are starting to get a little bit skeptical of this that the turnaround process is um looking more expensive than it might have seen before and it's not allowing citigroup so they think uh, to take advantage of what could be a really nice short-term opportunity in that their stock is cheap um i, I don't usually use that expression uh, just full stop like that I tend to say cheap for a bank or cheap compared to last year or, or whatever um, but it just looks cheap uh, the thing's trading it has a tangible book value in the 80s uh, uh, actual book value in the 90s it's trading somewhere in the I think 60s or so um, they did manage a buyback of about a billion or so uh, last time and they have started resuming that again and I saw some pieces over the last quarter saying Better get buying Citigroup shares because buyback's going to come. And I think buyback probably will come. But I think it's interesting how long to, to see how long they get on this turnaround process. Because it's taking time. And they said it was going to take time. But there's a lot going on. And it feels like opportunities are slipping away a little bit here. The other thought I have on it is this process does not look reversible uh, to me. It also does not look abortable. So it feels like, okay, if your plan is to try and reduce your global footprint and concentrate on your US consumer banking... We do the reducing bit first, right? You can't build out one before you've cut down the other one. Um, there's no way they're trying to put all that lot back together again and rebuy all these franchises. Uh, so that it feels like there is now no alternative but to follow through on this plan, even if it runs into some slightly unforeseen headwinds, not necessarily unforeseen by them, but unforeseen by analysts in the market more generally. So uh, I own the stock. I still like the stock very much. I'm still uh, thinking this is well-priced to succeed. But um, a very mixed report, I think, but mostly impatience coming through. 
Yeah, this is this is cheap. Uh, this is not even cheap by uh, just US bank standards, which which tend to trade at a premium to book. This is this is cheap by sort of global bank standards as well. When you're talking about something as uh, as big as uh, as Citigroup is, it, it's never nice to see up margin fall by nine percent at a bank, but it is understandable that restructuring almost never comes in as uh, as as cheap as um, companies. Um, expect it to so yeah if you were going to if you're going to go to investors and say look restructuring is going to cost multi multi billions of pounds they're going to say to you well why the hell are you doing it <laughs> i'd sooner you not do it if you go to them and say it's just going to be a few pounds and then uh, accidentally overspend that's one of the ways to get it through so i think that's what kind of what citigroup have done there uh, done there they've kind of sold a little white lie but in terms of the company, Steve, and the bank itself, it looks like it's doing fine. There's there's no real uh, complaints here from from me. This is just a cheap bank in the midst of restructuring. Uh, expect to see that up margin to climb back up uh, in the future, uh, and deposits looking stable as well, Steve. Which is something that you 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 want to see in a bank, even one that you know could be potentially in the midst of causing itself a bit of a nuisance, but. I think you're definitely right on the uh, on the sort of uh, devolution fruit here, uh, front here. I think once they get rid of all of these companies, this is it. Citigroup have committed to this, and it'll be interesting to see what comes of it. Yeah, investors, by which I mean analysts, are have been um, saying, "Why are we doing this?" Uh, expenses wise, what they're saying is, "Our stock is really cheap. Why are you not buying this back in as fast as you possibly can?" And Jane Fraser's response has been that's quite a short-term bit of thinking. Okay, we could seize a kind of temporary moment in the stock market here, but we're trying to build things for long-term earnings. I think she's wrong about that, by the way. I'm not above criticising people and companies that I uh, own. I think if you buy back your shares, that's a permanent change. Uh, You could drive up your earnings per share by a hell of a lot if you threw your spare cash into a buyback. It's not like they're saying... uh, If they were saying why don't you dividend it out uh, or something like that? I would agree. Yes, that's a very short term bit of thinking of, oh, we have this cash lying around. Why don't you dividend it rather than investing it into something? Like, So I agree. That would be a short term idea and a bad idea. Um, buying back your shares at about half their book value to me doesn't look like that. It looks like you can do a, a quite a good enduring um, a bit of good there. That doesn't mean that what they're doing is wrong because it doesn't mean that what they're doing is not better. Uh, it might be. But the idea that that's a temporary or short-term bit of thinking, I think, is a mistake uh, from uh, City's CEO. But ah, she's in charge, not me. Um, and she's doing fine as far as I can tell. Fair enough. Steve, did you see BlackRock's results? I did not see BlackRock's results. Tell me about BlackRock. So BlackRock, um, they came out with, uh, their. I think this is their Q2 2023 uh, basically, for them, if revenue was uh, met expectations, was down one percent year on year to four point four six billion. Uh, assets under management, Steve, grew by eleven percent year on year to nine point four three trillion dollars, uh, just a small number. Um, operating income uh, came was down three percent year on year to one point six two billion, and EPS was um, about nine dollars twenty eight, which was way above expectations, up twenty six percent year on year. That leads to op margins of about thirty six percent, which is down about sixty seven basis points from thirty seven. And assets and uh, management by segment, um, they reported seven and a half percent cash, nine point six percent retail, thirty four point one in ETF, and forty eight point eight percent in terms of institutional. So. BlackRock came in with a 
a pretty steady quarter. Um, a little bit more on the profitability, a little bit more on assets under management, but everything else was was pretty static. Um, interesting though, Steve, because assets under management is is quite interesting for it to be growing at that kind of that kind of speed. I don't feel like we're at that kind of point of the market, but stuff has been going up, so I would guess that accounts for some of it. Stuff has been going up, specifically, as we've been saying before, the kind of top end of US tech, but that's been driving because it's now such a big part of the, um, the S&P 500. That's been driving the whole thing with it. I, yeah, like you, I was surprised to see money really flowing in uh, like that and assets under management going up in quite that way. But I guess that's uh, pretty impressive. I mean, BlackRock is a fascinating company. We should talk more about that at, at some point. I mean, they they basically kind of sneak own the world, right? Yeah, they're they're pretty much on the uh, cabal list, aren't they, for the Illuminati and what have you in nearly every conspiracy theory. Uh, even even a lot of like the the massively left wing sort of uh, political people are, are are out against BlackRock. In fact, BlackRock is in the middle of political warfare mm. from the conspiracy theorists, the right wing and the left wing, and BlackRock kind of sits in the middle, taking flight from everybody. But yeah, and there's like people saying like, "Look, can you believe this? One company owns the world." And you're like, "Well, not really. It owns it. It's the same <laughs> in Vanguard. It owns it in for the benefit of its, you know, for the benefits of, it, of its shareholders." But they're like, oh, should should we let this one company have all this power?" Well, they are working to sort of devolve that power back to shareholders, even to ETF holders. They want to try and devolve that uh, that ability to um, to vote back to people because. To be honest with you, I think Larry Fink's sick of all the crap that comes with it. He's like trying to do his best, trying to vote through ESG, which is what people told him they want him to do. And then when he does things like that, he's either not doing ESG enough, ESG is rubbish, or <laughs> or he's been a, a woke lefty. So I just think Fink has had enough of that. And I, I think he, he priority number one for Blackhawk is just to devolve that power. Yeah, it's a tricky sort of position to to be in there, I think. BlackRock's fascinating, though. That's one we can come back to. Should we finish off with Wells Fargo? Wells Fargo, then. So last of the US banks to report. Uh, revenue came in at $20.5 billion, which was up 20%. EPS came in at $1.25, which was up 67%. Net interest income is up 29%. Higher credit loss reserve, mostly due to... This is the interesting bit. Uh, so everything you've heard so far is probably not a massive surprise. Uh, but higher credit loss reserves mostly due to commercial real estate. And they had some interesting comments on their call about the what's meant by commercial real estate here. So when they say commercial real estate, they said, yeah, what we mean by that is basically offices, uh, real estate, other forms of commercial real estate. And there's a way of thinking about commercial real estate, which is basically what you might call sort of non-residential uh, real estate. And if you think of it as non-residential, that includes things like uh, shops and warehouses and data centers and the like. And maybe maybe when we get into sort of um, uh, hospitals or whatever, we stop talking about commercial in quite the same way. But stuff, uh, shops and off and uh, industrial stuff and data centers are definitely kind of potentially commercial. They said, look, the real issue here is in offices. It's not in any other areas of commercial real estate, which is kind of interesting. They said, look, this has clearly got some way to uh run um that's going to take a few quarters and there is a bit of a headwind here coming and we're going to keep um putting out uh bigger reserves to cover losses in this area which we're expecting to come through over the next few uh quarters rather than the next few months 
that led me to the question that we had from Dave Harling, 3275, which was, what are your view on REITs at the moment? Um, REITs in general have taken a bit of a hammering because rising interest rates means property prices go down, means the net asset value of their stuff goes down, means the market value of their stuff goes down. So their share price generally falls. It's basically the, the short story of what's been happening so far. I think that means there's bargains in sectors that are not offices. Offices... Offices might be bargains. I just find it really hard to tell. I can see they've gone down a lot and there's a genuine problem there. Is the problem bigger than the price drop or the other way around? Good question. Happy for anyone who knows about it to tell me either way on that one. I know that Chanos said he wouldn't be short office real estate here, um, but there are more and more problems coming. Yeah, they've got the, the the sort of twofold problem of rising input costs and falling asset prices. So they've they've got... <laughs> Uh, they've got a, a a lot of problem ahead for a lot of REITs. The thing is, is that they because of the way they have to dispose of their cash, they end up being quite quite highly levered um, mm. in one way or another. So that there's a number of things they can do. Remember, so these higher priced REITs can get rid of the debt technically by issuing more shares to to. Uh, to, to pay for the debt so they can do that if they want to i think they'll be reluctant to do that at the moment and just sort of bide the time and see where interest rates are but i wouldn't be i wouldn't be massively surprised it's been a couple of years time Stephen, we're still at five or six percent interest rates maybe seven or eight in the uk to see some of these uk reits um have to essentially shit the bed and offer a million shares out to uh to try and clear some debts I think you do find that quite a bit, don't you? And it's always the case, especially with real estate um, as a, a sector, that this seems to come at the wrong time, right? The time you want to be offering shares out is when they're expensive. The trouble is that's usually when interest rates are low, so you don't have to worry about your debt quite so much. The time you don't want to be offering out them out is when they're cheap, and they're cheap because interest rates are high, which is the reason you're worrying about your debt coming uh, due and you can't afford to refinance it. Uh, so I, I'm... It would be no bad thing to kind of run a constant approach, as far as I can tell, of that uh, that said, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to issue shares when our shares are cheap and we're going to issue debt. Uh, sorry, issue shares when our shares are expensive and we'll issue debt when debt is cheap. The trouble is that doesn't seem to be a time where you think, OK, now it's shares time and now it's debt time. The two seem to move, unfortunately, in connected ways to one another. It's also connected to the question from Aaron, who asked on the Discord, I'll answer it here instead, of uh, I have a kind of fairly standing auto-reinvest going on with Realty Income at the moment and asked at what level would I be, uh, would I stop this auto-reinvest? Or what's my price target for stopping it? And it's kind of a, a slightly tricksy question in the sense that if you're supposed to be auto-reinvesting something, you're kind of doing it price agnostic. But I guess, but look, it, it makes a fair point of, if the price suddenly it's at about $60 at the moment, if it suddenly went to 600 would I keep buying the thing at those levels or would I think there's something better for me to do with this? I, I'd do something better with it, uh, to be honest. But um, So the, it's a slightly kind of complicated uh, situation for them. So they have a dividend that's around $3 or closing in on $3, but it's closing in on $3 very, very, very uh, slowly. I think it would depend on exactly where interest rates are and what else I can do with it. So I don't treat that as a normal investment. I treat that as a way of doing slightly better than the premium bonds that I was looking at. And so at the moment, I'd reinvest it anywhere at a 5% dividend return uh, because this is just a business that makes money and takes it, uh, takes it in and throws it out and takes it in and throws it out. I've talked before about my concern with realty income being that I don't think they're going to find it very easy to grow, even by REITI standards. Um, and I think they're... 
likely to find it um, tricky to use their kind of push their price increases through. They tend to be very, very stable and not very, very growthy. So they are like a classic dividend investment, despite them being a big part of our dividend growth investing colleagues portfolio. Uh, although I'm not convinced he owns much as dividend growth uh, investing. I had a look down his portfolio the other day, but maybe we'll talk about that with Paul when he gets back. Uh, so I think to stick a number on it anywhere under, I'd be disappointed buying it above $70 at the moment based on where that dividend is. I'm pretty happy buying it at 60. Uh, the lower the number goes, the happier I am buying it. Other things being equal, the higher the number that goes, the less happy I am, to be honest, because... Um, I'd like to try and see my dividend going up month by month, but to finish where we started on this show, the main thing that seems to be weighing on it at the moment is just FX. When the pound is weaker, I get more money back. When the pound is stronger, I get less money back, and it doesn't seem to make a difference how much I reinvest at the moment because uh, you only put back in a small amount, so the dividend moves around based on uh, the exchange rate and not an awful lot else, to be honest, Steve. Yeah, fair enough. There's not really an awful lot you can do about that, Steve, unless you want to take out a CFD hedge or get yourself on Revolut and buy, uh, buy yourself some dollars or sell some dollars. Can't see any point to doing that. No, I don't particularly want to go uh, trying to hedge it on the on the currency side. I've got other uses for the limited cash I have available at the moment. Um, but that was the main interesting bit I got from Wells Fargo's uh, earnings, to be honest. They seem to be in largely the same position that they're steadily in at the moment. They will be uh a steady churner thing until they get their asset kept lifted and then i don't know be interested to see whether they go mad or not i mean their share price is now back up around the 50-ish mark they don't tend to go much higher than that i realize that's a very very uh lazy bit of um analysis but uh i i don't imagine this going there being a sudden dam bursting uh on this anymore no, I don't think that's going to happen either. I was interested to see that Bank of America have now been fined for doing uh, doing the thing that Wells Fargo were doing. Uh, Wells Fargo got a hell of a lot more stipulations put on them. Obviously not doing it to the extent that Wells Fargo were doing it. That was nearly all of their business. But uh, Bank of America, uh, you know, being, being just as naughty as everyone else. Very much so. Um, and the day that news came out, their share price went up by a percent and a half. Uh, after some good earnings beats across the board, two of those banks that I just mentioned, City and Wells, were both down, and JP Morgan was uh, basically level um, in a way that I think that's more the market responding to uh, broader things than those. So uh, there you are, if you're interested in any of the sort of share price movements. You're supposed to say those on earnings reports, I guess. You're supposed to say, oh, the stock went up, down, sideways. This Was this a good report, bad report? Um, make of them what you will uh, but those are our kind of uh, thoughts on things I think anything else before we finish Steve cool well then in that case that was our show thank you all very much for listening and watching on whatever platform you're on give us a shout in the YouTube comments if you think we would be uh, better advised to go to a long form on Spotify and some shorter stuff on YouTube uh, we're interested in what you think and we will see you all next week <laughs>